and welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our wonderful radio syndicates across the country, or maybe on the podcast which can be found on greenmajority.ca. We are uh, blessed to provide a, a special a special episode, a hour-long interview on the state of journalism uh, with Anita Lee, journalist, media consultant, and professor. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Stefan. For context, of course, you know we're normally an environment show, but the the way media flows into everything that's going on, it is a layer that I think impacts all ability to do real action, honestly, within within the environment and in the world generally. And so these types of check-ins on on how we're doing and understanding the state of of this you know this world, of course, you know, feeds into the rest of the larger conversations in our in our experience. But perhaps uh, to provide our listeners sort of a bit extra about you, you can let us know about, about your work and your experience with the media. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to co-sign what you said there, because I'm sure your, your listeners are aware of Emily Atkins' climate newsletter. And she actually, her most recent one, she was talking about how major media organizations haven't really covered like the big picture of climate and how it's actually exacerbated the pandemic. So, I mean, that's very on point. As for the backstory to my work and experience, I have a bit of an unorthodox background for a Canadian journalist, I think. Um, the first half of my career was largely at Canadian establishment legacy media outlets. So I'm sure many, uh, many of which your listeners are familiar with. So CBC, the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, CTV, and I, like, it was I was in all manner of positions. So whether that's like a reporter, print reporter, on-air reporter, producer, editor, uh, it ran the gamut. And then the second half of my career has largely been at American digital media outlets in management level positions. Um, but prior to becoming a consultant, full-time consultant last year, my most recent uh, role and most significant of my career, I would say, at least in a Canadian context for sure, uh, was as director of communities at The Discourse, which is a community-driven journalism publication and in Vancouver and is one that is really ch challenging the status quo in Canadian media. I think what's great about that is that you have such a wide range of experience within all sectors that you may be perfect to answer my next follow-up question, um, which is really about the state of media. It, you, it's, it feels like you can't go a day or two without some article referencing the death of newspapers um, mm -hmm. or, or other pieces here. And so... If you, so how do you see where we're at right now in, in terms of media, especially related to sort of its ability to exist as a functioning business? Mm -hmm. So it's, we're obviously undergoing a, a major period of disruption that's been ongoing probably for the last decade. Um, I'm sure many, like yourself, I'm sure you've heard that over the last decade, over 250 local media outlets across the country have shuttered their doors. And a lot of that has to do with <clears throat> the business model of media. So typically, a lot of um, media outlets rely on advertising as their primary revenue source. But the problem with that is over the last little while, probably over the last 15 years since social media has really, you know, become a thing, um, tech giants like Google and Facebook have started cannibalizing ad dollars from media outlets. So the pool of ad revenue is just shrinking for a lot of outlets. Um, the good thing about this is that there has been a really positive pivot towards 
subscription and membership model. So I'm sure uh, you're familiar with the, you know, the New York Times subscription model. It's, it's been widely successful. And so there's a lot of outlets, including local media outlets, that are kind of trying to replicate that success. Um, and the cool thing about this model is that it cuts out the middleman. So it cuts out advertisers. And what I mean by that is when an outlet serves news of value that reflects the lived experiences of a certain community, that community is willing, is more likely uh, to pay for that news. And so it's like a virtuous cycle where they're paying directly for the content that, that they want. And then the journalism outlet is able to sustain itself from a financial perspective and continue producing that kind of journalism. So there is a movement towards that. It's a positive movement, but obviously there are a lot of, there are a lot of outlets struggling and particularly during COVID, um, if you weren't the kind of outlet that really focused on community or you weren't like a major kind of like uh, corporate entity, um, then, or you weren't a place like, you know, the Times or Washington Post, then you'd likely probably either shuttered your doors or you lost a lot of staff. So it hasn't been a really good time for media in general. Yeah. And, and, and what's interesting also is as these media companies have become less able to survive, They've, of course, relied more and more on on other companies buying them and running them, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you sort of see this, you, 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 even with the Toronto Star takeover recently, the yeah. conversations around these larger you know, hedge funds or larger financial entities sort of absorbing media properties oh, and, 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 then, and then seemingly, at least in some cases, gutting them. Yes. Yeah. And there's, like, there's also been extreme consolidation, right? So there's... Um, a lot of that is what's causing the diminishing of a lot of local news outlets. And that's a huge problem because research shows that if people don't ha- have access to local news that reflects their daily lives, they're less likely to engage civically. They're less likely to vote, which is bad for our democracy. And they're also less likely to trust their neighbors, <clears throat> which is obviously an issue during a time. And it's really a hotbed for polarization and misinformation if you're not connecting to reality, really, and connecting to others, right? There's just increasing mistrust and just like, poor mental health overall. So, I mean, we often say media is a pillar of democracy and it's really, like you said at the beginning of your introduction, interconnected to everything. It's such an integral part of our society. Yeah. And you sort of mentioned this earlier about the difficulty of being advertising-based and, and clickbaity based Because mm-hmm. um, when you're advertising-based, especially online, you know, you're, you need clicks. That becomes your revenue model. And, exactly. and, and then suddenly your, your journalism is beholden uh, to to getting people to click on it, which is becomes the most important piece. So can you talk exactly. a bit about how that impacts you know both the business but also sort of the journalism that it creates? Yeah, completely. So you hit the nail on the head there. Um, it's I've worked at a lot of uh, venture backed like venture capital backed media outlets, especially in the U.S. and that particularly relied on advertising. And so that's a really bad combination where you know we're talking about venture venture capitalists are very interested in relentless growth, right? And that's just not compatible with the way journalism is done. Um, it's not naturally scalable in the way that technology is because it's it's you know the the quality of the journalism is the most important thing that brings readership back or audiences back over and over again, right? So if you're really prioritizing clicks and people are, the goal is to basically churn out an assembly line, kind of as much quantity of content as possible rather than quality. So what you get is a, a lot of subpar, like I wouldn't even call them news pieces, but they're really borderline, you know, news pieces or press releases or, you know, viral content. And while there is a place for that on the internet, and I think BuzzFeed is actually 
has an, had a, had an interesting model where they that was their bread and butter, and that ended up funding a lot of more audience-driven journalism or investigative journalism. So there can be a place for that. I don't. I think in terms of the balance of media outlets, uh, most places really just kind of double down on like the clickbaity, shallow, just non-public service journalism. So I'm curious, given that you've sort of worked in the States and Canada, are we, are we unique? You know, like, cause a lot of the articles about sort of failing media do come from the States options, but here in Canada, the, to the centralization, especially you mentioned seems overtly, you know, like what, two or three major companies own almost mm-hmm. every newspaper in all of Canada, mm-hmm. you know? And so are we unique here in Canada? And if so, what is unique about, you know, what we are experiencing? So we're not unique in the sense that like, I mean, industries around the world are struggling with this advertising revenue question. They're really trying to diversify their revenue sources and they're shifting from an advertising, almost exclusively advertising model, especially if if you're a newspaper, right? Um, To diversifying diversifying the revenue sources so that they can become more sustainable. And so across North America, you see that there's been a lot of local news outlets that have closed their doors. But the difference between Canada and the US is that I'm going to quote Jesse Brown here, actually, because it's very true, is that Canada is more of a club than an industry. And so that there's a lot of problems where Canadian media is often extremely embedded, uh, in, embedded with the upper echelons of the federal government. Um, and so there's a lot of ties between like people in positions of power and how news is controlled and what's disseminated, especially from editorial boards. So that's an issue. There's also just... Um, the other faction to this is the fact that Canada just doesn't have as many revenue sources. Uh, Canadian media just doesn't have as many revenue sources. So even if you wanted to go a venture capital route, we just venture here is, a, is more risk adverse and media outlets in general, like are just, I wouldn't say anathema, but given the fact that, I mean, venture has proven to be just unsuccessful for a lot of media outlets. Like you've seen even Vice Canada and places like Buzzfeed, these massive entities and making layoffs or having layoffs once every two years, um, venture capitalists are kind of afraid of like funding media entities. And like I said, in Canada, they're already risk averse. But the other thing about Canada that's not great is that we don't grant charitable status to media companies, which would allow them to receive tax deductible donations to support investigative and public service journalism. Whereas, you know, in the States, there's so many foundations. I mean, ProPublica is like a really fantastic example of a, a foundation-funded outlet that does amazing work and it's like so well-funded and we just don't have anything like that here. So it's it's a lot tougher because it's a much smaller ecosystem. The other thing is, um, I mean, I, I'm sure you saw in the last budget that, I mean, in my opinion, uh, the federal government is really propping up establishing media outlets that have dying business models that they're not even trying to rejuvenate. (laughs) Frankly, I feel like there's a failure in leadership in in Canadian media at large, especially among the establishment, which I've said a lot and I've gotten in trouble for, but it's true. And, um, and yeah, like it's, it is, they're propping up these dying business models uh, as opposed to injecting life and providing funding and support for this emerging digital media ecosystem which the discourse in a bunch of other places like the Narwhal and the Observer, the National Observer are leading. Um, and they have really, they're brilliant, smart people who are empathetic and they really care about journalism. Um, and I was actually part of a lobbying effort at the discourse trying to lobby the federal government to basically support this ecosystem. But we really haven't seen the kind of support 
that we need. And every few years, it seems like we're bailing out these establishment outlets that are really not really trying as hard as they should be. And mind you, one thing I really want to uh, emphasize too is that this doesn't just impact the public, right? It also impacts like thousands of journalists, especially young journalists and particularly underrepresented journalists from like marginalized communities from, uh, because they are, you know, they have the most precarious um, situations, employment situations. It really is preventing them from like furthering their careers and doing the kind of work that is representative of a modern Canada. So it's just alarming on many different levels. <laughs> yeah. It, it, and what you're seeing, especially, or, or what I'm sort of seeing is, is how many of these young journalists are finding themselves moving to the States, you know, mm-hmm. because they're able to find, uh, you know, career opportunities there. Like we're yeah. losing talent by the seemingly, like, almost, like it's incredible the number of, of, of young journalists who are, who are leaving to, to find work there. Completely. I mean, guess why I moved to New York City for two years? Uh, exactly. So it's because, in fact, it's it's really interesting for this moment because I uh, I went to the States largely because I wanted to cover issues of race, which was completely almost non-existent when, I'm, when I started working for an American outlet in 2012. Like, honestly, virtually non-existent in this country, or at least it's a very reductive coverage. And, and also, there are just not many jobs. Like, I, I left a full-time internship, year-long internship at the Star, uh, to go to work at Mashable, um, which was like a, a, an emerging kind of tech startup blog at the time. And I'm so glad I did because it really opened up far more opportunities in the United States. It's just so tough to get a permanent full-time job in this country in media, especially as a young person. Yeah. And, and you, so you mentioned there sort of the, the desire to move on uh, to to media that, that serves us as, as citizens, uh, yes. which is a great segue to our next segment. So uh, we'll be right back uh, with more from Anita Lee. And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or maybe one of our wonderful radio syndicates across the country, or maybe on the podcast, which can be found at greenmajority.ca. This is Stefan Hostetter, which I forgot to say off the top of the show. I'm hoping you can recognize my voice. Um, and I am here with a special hour-long interview with Anita Lee, a journalist, media consultant, and professor. And we're talking about the state of media. Uh, we just managed to... We just sort of finished our first segment talking about sort of the business side of, of media, but... But obviously, where our heart lies uh, here, and, I'm, and I think with yourself as well, is, is really how media can serve the people, how media can serve us as a society, and, and how currently, you know, it's not doing such a great job of it. And so, and so maybe you can elaborate on some of that. So currently, you know, uh, you know, this summer has, I think, maybe been the most adamantly proof of this. And you even mentioned earlier uh, about, the, about Heated's sort of concept, concept about how the media is failing to cover climate change in an effective way either. But maybe you can expand on sort of how corporate media is failing to, you know, to adapt uh, to this changing environment and serve, you know, our communities. Yeah, so I will speak about this from a Canadian context. And it's interesting because I was talking to another journalism professor about this recently, and we're just discussing just, I guess the culture of Canadian media is the best way I can put it. Um, So there is this, I guess, conservatism, and not in a political sense, but this kind of like reticence to or aversion to risk taking in Canadian media, which means that we haven't progressed 
very far in terms of a lot of our best practices. Um, and so a lot of the outlets that I worked in the States have been more experimental and innovative um, than some of the work I've done at, in Canada at establishment outlets. Um, so I'm not including the discourse in this. And one of the consequences of this is that you the the way that journalism has been done hasn't really evolved in that, you know, you talked about serving the public and serving audiences. Like when it comes to corporate media, media, they're a lot of, like a lot of the times they're serving their funders. Right. And, and a lot of times we don't know who those funders are. So we, there's no transparency. So if you're not serving the public, then you're not doing your job as a media outlet because that is really first and foremost uh, journalist jobs uh, to serve the public and provide information that informs their daily lives and can improve their lives, right? To help them make informed decisions. So that's one of the reasons why corporate media is failing to adopt and serve citizens um, of this country. Um, and that is particularly egregious in Canada, given that there isn't just any sort of robust enough competition yet to show an alternative way of doing things. Although I'm, I am an optimist at heart and I have said a couple years ago that in the next little while there'd be an explosion of um, uh, digital media outlets in this country. And that's definitely happening thanks to accelerators like the Indigraph. Great. So we've sort of discussed at, at length the ways that the Cormier is not succeeding in the, way, in, the, in the ways that we could be maybe doing better. But, but there is this one other element to all of this before we get into the solutions. Don't worry, listeners, we are moving towards solutions at the end of the show. So we're not, it's not all doom and gloom for this episode. It's maybe the only episode it's not all doom and gloom given the state of the world. But this episode moves upwards in a, trajectory, a positive trajectory. But the one last piece of this, I think, before we, or last couple pieces before we sort of move in that direction is, is trust in media, right? You know, the, uh, the tie in here to... You know, when you have these, as you mentioned, sort of feelings like these, these corporate media is not particularly beholden to its listeners and, and then consistently comes out, you know, the editorial boards consistently come out in, in, with positions that don't seem to match the readership whatsoever. And, and you get these different types of things. Like the one that always sticks my brain is the number, I think almost every major newspaper in Canada basically claimed that we were not committing a genocide with, after mm -hmm. the missing and murdered indigenous women's came out. And it was like, who made, like you are the people operating our entire media and being accused of being the liberal media, and yet none of you can can, can can even begin to face up to the the massive amount of work that went into this study that proved what was happening, right? Like, it, yeah. and to me, it sort of really highlighted this 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 disconnect between those who are so running these news outlets and those who are reading these news outlets, okay. and also our understanding of the news outlets, right? We were, you know, these the Toronto Star did the exact same thing, despite the fact that Toronto Star is considered, you know, the quote unquote left newspaper in this in this country. Yep. And so, and so that so I'm curious about your take on on sort of the ways in which the trust in media is is failing uh, and what is causing it to fail because because some of it's that but some of it's also more insidious right there's also a whole level of just you know the fake news kind of much more insidious attacks on journalism as a much more okay. yeah exactly almost so, two sides of this yeah exactly so to me it's kind of like a, a there's a there's dual reasons like a two prong kind of perspective that I have. Um, one is obviously the rise of misinformation and disinformation in society. And there's obviously a lot of bad faith actors, um, sometimes within the country, sometimes outside of the country that are trying to, you know, influence media, um, influence our democracy, really. 
Um, so there's, it's just like a hotbed of misinformation and disinformation that exists out there. Um, and there's also, there's another reason for that is because it's just so much, everyone's become a publisher these days. So there's just, it's because of this overabundance of information, it's really hard for people to parse through what they can trust on a trust and what they can rely on. Um, there's also a lot of like, you know, entities, like a lot of tech giants, for example, like Facebook that are really kind of pushing people to misinformation about things like climate change or vaccines or race and even sexism, right? Um, so that's one component of it. The other thing is the fact that, which is less talked about, is the fact that establishment media and particularly corporate media have failed, you know, the public, right? So there is, because of the fact that they're not, they're serving third parties, they're serving external funders, they're serving advertisers and not the public, the public is going to obviously have, grow, like develop a natural distrust of establishment media and particularly underrepresented communities who are, or which are already really overlooked and not reflected in, in establishment media. So that really exacerbates things because, you know, uh, when I was, when I was young and I was in my early, and now I'm in my early thirties, there was just a few places that I read the news. So it was the Toronto star. I watched CTV and sometimes my parents watched or consume like Chinese newspapers. And you knew that a lot like those publications were reliable because everyone else around you were consuming the same kind of media. But because of this increasing, just, just, I, I wouldn't say dismissal, but just kind of um, overlooking of, you know, the very people that you're supposed to be serving, that's really compromised the relationship between media outlets and the general public particularly, like I said, in underrepresented communities and add, you know, misinformation and disinformation to the mix. You have just this, frankly, very chaotic media environment that is very hard to navigate. And at the center of all that is the issue of trust, right? There's just like no trust in media, period, oftentimes, uh, I find. And if there's no trust in media, period, that's really bad because in order for us to actually function as a society, particularly as a democracy that involves people to vote, we have to actually have the same access to information and the same access to facts, um, unassailable facts. Um, and yeah, so that is, that is being currently compromised. Yeah. I, I feel like that, that last bit was the thing I was, I was, I was sort of moving towards this idea that like, if you don't have a shared truth, yeah. do you, you know, like there was a thing about the DNC, the, the Democratic National Convention last week, where a bunch of people were saying that Biden's speech was pre-taped and the only way to combat it was some journalists were like, I was in the room, here's a photo of me looking at him speak. And even that did not seem to be enough proof for some of these people, right? Like yes. we are definitely getting to a place where the, where truth is being, is a hundred percent argued um, across yeah. the board. Yeah. And I do think that the one other thing, as we move on to sort of the, the next sort of stage, um, is what's interesting, actually, I think about this, the dual problem of this is that as corporate media fails to act, act actively cover some things, uh, the, it, gives a, it gives a wedge of truth to the concept of sort of up to the, to the fake newsers who are trying to undermine the concept of journalism altogether. Because mm -hmm. of the fact that, you know, the, the, the corporate media might spin a thing in a weird way, you know, like police-involved shooting. And, and that will be seen as, and that's, you know, an obfuscation, quite clearly, of, mm -hmm. of, of what's occurring. And, and that will then 
impact that will then leave that wedge of truth that people will hear there and then they'll hear it somewhere else and they're like oh you're also lying about whether or not you know biden's giving a speech in person it's like no but when you are not you're not experiencing too much you get stuck in this in this back and forth Mm -hmm. that's exactly right and so and so the other thing so it's it's funny it's like there's one there's there's sort of these two as we said two issues there but this this third thing which which i'll get to now which i'm curious your thoughts on which is that it's one thing to not, you know, not effectively act, be able to report on news. It's another thing to not have anyone to report on the news. <laughs> you know, like, uh, and and this is, you know, from from our first sort of segment conversation about the failing business models. It has really caused an explosion of news deserts. You know, yes. with, you know, for those who are unfamiliar with the concept of news deserts, they're very familiar with the concept of food deserts, which are very familiar with the concepts of deserts. Although I, I would imagine people who actually live in the desert would probably make an actual case that it is actually much more lively. So I think maybe <laughs> slandering deserts unfairly. But the, the concept is these areas that are underserved by news media, right? You know, there's, and, and, and how people are responding to that. Um, yes. can, can you sort of uh, elaborate on, on what is happening with these news deserts and, and w- what the implications of them are? Yeah, absolutely. And for the record, I'm a fan of deserts, but not a fan of news deserts. <laughs> That's an important question. <laughs> so, so, um, so I mentioned I, I, I mentioned earlier that uh, more than 250 media outlets across the country have shuttered their doors over the last 10 years, and there are like large numbers that have also closed their doors in the U.S. And that is largely because of the consolidation and of you know a lot of media outlets corporate media but also in conjunction with the fact that a lot of independent media outlets just have not been able to survive um and this is bad this causes information gaps and uh this has impacted local news in particular which is really which is particularly an issue because local news is actually the thing that touches our our lives the most you know um it's about you know traffic it's about you know the local community events it's about your local business owner it's about the people you know and you care about right so like i said this causes a lot of disconnection this compromises our democracy but i also want to talk about a different kind of news desert because a lot of you know what you often read about is uh geographic news desert so places like, for example, in the greater Toronto area in Toronto, a news desert would be a place like Scarborough or Little Portugal or Willowdale or Brampton. Um, but there's also news deserts from an identity perspective. And these, you know, these communities include, you know, indigenous, like indigenous communities, like black communities, uh, communities of color, uh, communities, uh, LGBTQ plus communities, uh, like people with disabilities. There's a lot of lived experience that is left on the table that is not being represented and those many of those people definitely feel alienated and they feel disconnected and you can even see this i mean like you could see this with a lot of the uh, the recent what's been happening over the last few months right um just this immense response to george floyd's murder and black lives matter movement i i feel very strongly that is very much tied to how the media reports on these issues and oftentimes it's I mean, like, not even oftentimes, it's like the rule, not the exception that, um, you know, it's oftentimes, I'm going to focus on communities of color in this case, have been covered in a way that's very reductive or stereotypical and very dehumanizing. And so you see a a lot of a lot of these communities now are not wanting to put up with it. They're creating their own, you know, like journalistic 
uh, outlets, which I'd love to talk about later as a, as a possible solution. Um, and they're also just turning away from establishment and corporate media. So it's just, like I said, this just adds to the further disconnection between people. Because like you said, there's an emergence of multiple different kinds of truth when there really should be a more universal one when it comes to hard facts. Yeah, and that and that sort of brings me to the last uh, last piece of this of this conversation before we move on to the the third segment, which again, as mentioned, is the solutions part of this conversation. So stay with us; it gets positive. Which is this conversation about how how the lack of representation of diverse perspectives in legacy media, you know, has led to this has led to sort of almost all of the problems above, right? Like if you like, it is in some ways it is the it is the foundational issue that has almost led to the entirety of the issues we've now spent the last say half an hour discussing, and 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 so it, can you sort of talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think you you hit it. It's it's the foundational piece of this, right? So I can give uh, everyone an example of how a lack of representative coverage really impacts the community. So when I was at the discourse, I was the main producer and editor of the Scarborough community. So that is a geographic news desert, but it's also kind of an identity news desert because Scarborough is a suburb of Toronto and is 70% racialized. Um, And it's also a place that's just evolved a lot. And it just, it's very, it's a very like, diverse place, not just from a race perspective, but also just socioeconomically and different parts are very different. Um, but because of the fact that it's like 70% racialized, um, in my opinion, it's always been covered in such a stereotypical or reductive way. Like when I was growing up, uh, people referred to Scarborough as Scarlum um, uh, or Scarberia. And whenever I talked to folks in the community, especially in the initial stages of Scarborough Discourse, when I was just collecting information and engaging with people on the ground, they would tell me, like, we don't feel like, first of all, when we are covered, it's covered in such a dehumanizing way, that, uh, painting us as a place of crime and grime. But when, uh, but, you know, outside of that, we're just completely ignored. And that's actually proven by the fact that, uh, you know, at the Toronto Star, when I was younger and I subscribed to the paper, it was just, Scarborough coverage was more prominent, although it was still problematic and reductive, but at least there was some sort of presence there. And over time, because of the lack of resources and the lack of staff, they just decided to kind of move away from that altogether. Um, and in fact, Kathy English, the former public editor at the Star, said that after Scarborough discourse started existing, the Star made more of an effort to cover Scarborough. So that's, you know, I'm alluding to like potential solutions down the line. But that is an issue. Like this, there's an entire community that feels alienated from the rest of this, like rest of broader the broader city, the broader province, the broader country, and they don't feel like their views are reflected. And there's a lot of um, negativity associated with lack of representation in media. Everything from you know like the issues with democracy and polarization that I mentioned, but also just like really bad for mental health outcomes too. When people don't see themselves reflected, came from personal experience as somebody who is a person of color uh, growing up in a country that is, you know, that is majority white. Like if you, if I don't see myself reflected, I just don't feel like I am part of the fabric of, fabric of society and that my voice matters. And that is a problem, you know? Yeah, for sure. I, I think, I think this may be, uh, despite the fact that uh, I am a born and raised in Scarborough, the first time we've talked about Scarborough on the show. <laughs> so uh, owning up to our own failures and covering <laughs> and covering uh, my hometown. 
Um, but thank you so much. So as I pr- as promised now multiple times on the show, we will be coming back with our third segment in just a second about where we should be headed and, and some positive thoughts. So we write back uh, with Anita Lee here on CIUT. Welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our radio syndicates across the country, or maybe on the podcast, which you can find at greenmajority.ca. This is Stefan Hostetter. Uh, we are at our special one-hour interview with Anita Lee, a journalist, media consultant, professor, talking about the state of journalism here in Canada and somewhat a little bit in North America, but mostly focusing on Canada. And this last segment is all about where we should be headed. And there's a term that I learned uh, only a few years ago at a, at a, at a, at a uh, sort of gathering for, for media groups. And, and when I heard it, it really struck a tone with me. And it's something that you've, all, that you've talked about a bunch and are working towards, which is which term solutions journalism. Can you uh, explain to our audience what solutions journalism is and why it's so important? Yeah, absolutely. So I love Solutions Journalism, and everybody should check out the Solutions Journalism Network, uh, which is actually run by a Canadian, um, or co-run by a Canadian. So uh, Solutions Journalism is basically reporting on existing solutions to systemic issues. So I want to make the distinction that it's not advocacy journalism. When a journalist reports on solutions, they're not pushing forth one particular point of view as the answer. Um, and when also, so it's really just taking a critical look at the existing solutions that have come out of community. And so it's not just like, okay, this is the, the one solution and that there's no problems with it. It's really saying like, this is, this is how people in this particular community is trying to figure this out, uh, which is wonderful, right? It's uh, democratizing solutions. It's really kind of it's like a bottom-up way to collaborate and come together as a community to figure out like how to work on certain systemic issues. Um, and so, yeah, I think solutions journalism is quite hopeful in that uh, I, I know a lot of people, myself included, even as a journalist, ha- is experiencing, we're experiencing a lot of news fatigue. You're getting a lot of just negative, an onslaught of negative news. There's just like a, not a day goes by where you can't, you know, where you don't hear about some awful thing happening in the world. So solutions journalism is a really good way to kind of flip that on its head and point to things where, that give us, you know, a semblance of hope or point a, a, towards a path that we can take. Um, so, so yeah, so that's why I'm a huge advocate of it. And I really try to use it as one of the tools in my tool belt as a journalist. Yeah. And what's interesting about this is so, so much of media that we consume, I think, uh, especially, you know, as you referenced previously, when you look into these things that are more clickbait sort of revenue models, you know, mm-hmm. are focused exclusively on getting you to click. And so it's, it's shock and awe and then, and then, and then move on. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and you don't get a lot of this uh, solution sort of type of how are people actually resolving the problem. And I'm curious if you have insight as to why we don't see more of it. So I think like solutions journalism, I mean, there's a co- I actually know this firsthand from the solutions journalism network, but there is, um, especially in Canada, a bit of a stigma against the term because of the confusion with advocacy journalism. And remember earlier on, on the show, I was talking about how Canadian media is a little conservative and risk averse. So we have particular ways of going about reporting on the news, right? It's very like, you know, about objectivity, uh, balance, he said, she said. 
Um, and the only departure from that oftentimes is like investigative journalism. So we, we haven't really experimented with different ways of presenting the news. Um, and, and, but I will, will say it's actually gaining a lot of traction. So I, I would hesitate to say that it's just, you know, it hasn't been embraced because I just think it's in its earlier stages. And I do think a lot of outlets are adapting this approach and it is, um, catching on. Um, but that is one of the big things. There's just confusion between solutions and advocacy journalism. It strikes me a little bit as also a conversation about what, uh, what the journalist sees as their job. Mm. Right. Like, yeah, like, that's exactly like, right. So especially like very, very traditional old school journalists, it's like I am removed from the story. I am completely unbiased. I am effectively like a, a, a robot um, and I don't have any perspective on this whatsoever. And I'm not trying to like look for a report on answers. I'm just going to report the problem and then present it to the public and make, help them, you know, not even help them, just let them draw their own conclusions, right? So with solutions journalism, there's a bit more of an active kind of decision-making process on the part of the reporter and editor where you're like, okay, I'm identifying these really nifty solutions and I'm going to report on them. So I think there is a, a level of discomfort among certain journalists, that's, I don't include myself in that, where they feel like they're, they're putting themselves in the story. And that is just like anathema to a, to a lot of really... Um, old school journalists. And I understand that, but we're in a different time right now and it's a different world. And I do think sometimes we do need to, you know, illuminate paths forward. And it doesn't necessarily mean we're pushing those, but we need to illuminate those and at least put them front and center and show people what could be. Yeah. The, the stories of building things are just as much stories as stories of things being destroyed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, I think it's even more of, more of a story these days, especially. Um, you know, in light of the pandemic, everybody's talking about how, you know, we're challenging existing, you know, status quo thoughts and, and structures and systems. So really, uh, like my mind is really about building at this point. It's focused on building. Yeah. And so so the second uh, piece which you sort of referenced earlier about um, a, 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 of sort of one of the ways you can sort of see a path forward are these member-led initiatives, are the, are the mm -hmm. fact that, you know, subscriber-led or, or member-led sort of pushing you towards the stories uh, and how do you see that sort of filtering in? Yeah, absolutely. So I want to make the distinction between subscription and membership. So sus subscription is really a revenue transaction between a publisher and a reader, right? So they agree to like pay a certain amount to access the news and like maybe get past the paywall. Membership is actually far more about a values and mission. So there's a lot of um, outlets that are focused on member-driven uh, revenue, um, because, for example, the discourse uh, talked about, you know, uh, putting a spotlight on overlooked communities. And so if you're, you were somebody who really believed in that mission, you were more likely to pay for the news that we, we delivered, right? So that's, that's a distinction I want to make. But the, so, and that actually incentivizes folks to pay because, you know, they believe in the journalism, they believe in the mission, they feel like they're being part of something bigger and more important that will help society and their fellow people, their fellow citizens. And so that is actually quite hopeful. And it's also wonderfully earnest and wonderfully optimistic from my perspective. Um, and there's definitely a growing number of these outlets. Yeah. And, th and that sort of brings to the sort of the, the culmination of the, these questions, which is really about the future of journalism. Where do you sort of see journalism going? And you said you're hopeful. So, and why are you hopeful, I guess? Yeah. Um, so I, 
I am very lucky in that I get to be at the forefront of a lot of cutting edge projects that are really trying to figure out revenue models and audience engagement. So I will, so I will talk a bit about those and I'll also talk about where I think the which is audience driven journalism. And so this really touches on what I talked about when it comes to membership. I talked about when it comes to, you know, engaging communities in a much meaningful way and kind of taking a much more bottom-up approach to news rather than a top-down approach. So we've seen this kind of shift uh, in recent years from a top-down model where it used to be a group of really homogenous, uh, a homogenous group of editors from similar backgrounds deciding what the day's news should be, what people know about and then disseminating that to a broader public but that's really been subverted by a lot of places including you know places like the discourse where there's a lot of more collaboration between journalists and uh, members of the public and community members on the ground because who knows their community better than the folks living there right so there's a lot more collaboration to deliver the kind of news that actually informs people's lives and actually provides value so that's one thing the other thing is um uh, I alluded to these projects that I'm part of. So <clears throat> one is um, Google's Project Oasis, which is an effort to figure out um, sustainable uh, models for local news outlets, uh, both from a journalistic but largely from a revenue standpoint. And so what we're doing is analyzing a lot of su- successful local media outlets w- that have been able to uh, find sustainability or even um, uh, growth and figuring out what the consistent things, uh, what were the consistent things that they did that led them to this kind of success? So that's a really exciting thing. And we're currently, we're, or I'm no longer part of the project now. I was part of the first phase, but the team over there right now is building out a database that allows anybody who's interested in launching their own media outlet from their own perspective, uh, with their own mission, um, to figure out how to do so, which is amazing. And it's democratizing media ownership in particular, which is like very important because it's not even about when I talk about representation, I'm not just talking about it in terms of the bylines that you read or the faces that you see on TV. I'm really talking about it from an ownership perspective, right? Um, because the folks who do own media outlets right now are largely a homogenous group of, I would venture to say, you know, white, um, like men who are affluent. And really, we need to broaden that out to like women, to people of color, to women of color, to people from all sorts of identities so that it's reflective of those communities and authentically so, right? Just not like there's, you know, other corporate media can, you know, uh, and I encourage them to cover different communities, obviously, but if it comes from an authentic place and if the person who owns the entity is of that community, it's only going to resonate more. So that's, that's a really positive thing. And I also just want to say like, because I'm in education and I, I teach as well, I'm teaching these things. I'm teaching about audience engagement. I'm teaching about how audience connects to revenue. I'm teaching about entrepreneurial journalism. There's a lot more young people questioning the notions of objectivity, like questioning whether this current media ecosystem is good enough. Um, and that's amazing. So, and they're demanding like different ways of, understanding the news they're demanding like uh, they're these journalism students in particular being like you know i don't even i don't think i'm gonna end up at post media nor do i really want to so like what are the alternative paths and that's really cool because you know we're focusing less on status we're focusing less on less on elitism and we're just focusing on the fundamental purpose of journalism which is serving the public and serving communities so to me that's all amazing and it's a messy period but it's also really exciting 
Um, it's a really cool time to get into journalism. Um, it's a really great time to support this emerging ecosystem. Um, and the only way it's going to flourish is if the members of the public continue to support support those efforts. Yeah, and and so uh, obviously we're we're coming close to time, and so I want to make sure we get uh, a chance for you to talk, tell us about you know you're taking your uh, a step into this conversation uh, with a with a project of yourself. So you can you, can you tell us about the other wave? Yeah, absolutely. So I'd love to. So the other wave is a newsletter that I'm launching by the end of this summer, and it's going to document two things. So it's good. currently um, I. I'm co-founder. I co-founded an organization called Canadian Journalists of Color, which is a resource uh, uh, sharing and support network for journalists of color across the country. And so as part of my work there, um, my organization and the Canadian Association of Black Journalists co-released seven calls to action to strengthen newsroom diversity across the country. And, you know, uh, it's like the call to action got a lot of traction, uh, both among establishment and emerging media outlets. So part of my newsletter will document document those conversations and my own insights from those conversations. And those will be exclusive insights that you can't get anywhere else. The second part of the newsletter is documenting my outsider's journey. So I, I see myself often as an insider and outsider because of Canadian media, because I've worked in a, I've worked in established media and emerging media in Canada, but I also worked in the U.S. and kind of have been taking a more not unconventional experimental route. So I want to take all of that kind of background um, and what I'm doing is developing my own media company and media outlet. So I'm going to document that journey uh, through the other wave. So you're interested in joining me and I'm uh, like on that journey, uh, please subscribe to my newsletter and you can go to theotherwave.substack.com. Yeah, and so the, I won't talk too much about my project, uh, but it is it is called teomag.ca, and that is all I'm going to say. But definitely follow me on my journey. It's going to be really interesting because um, I'm a woman of color. There aren't many media owners who are people of color, let alone women of color. Um, I also don't for money, and so there's a lot of stuff that I'm going to figure out in terms of like. Uh, the revenue side, but also like just journalistic principles and my mission. Um, and I'm going to try to be as authentic and candid as possible um, and to let you in on that process. So yeah, I think it's going to be really exciting. Amazing. Uh, thank you so much. A, uh, we'd love to have you back on the show in a, in a couple weeks uh, or a couple months when it's up and running so we talk about how it's going. Um, and thank you so much for your time and your insight. This has been Anita Lee, journalist, media consultant, and professor. And I guess a writer, host, I don't know what to say, of, of the other wave, but check that out as well. Thanks so much, Anita. Yeah, thanks so much, Stefan. Stefan.